Avinu Malkeinu. This is Unorthodox, the universe's leading Jewish podcast. I am your host, Mark Oppenheimer, joined as ever by tablet editor-at-large, Leah Leibowitz. Shalom lecha, chaveri hatum. Lecha dodi to you, Leo. And by tablet deputy editor, Stephanie Butnick. Reporting for duty. <laughs> is that how you feel about this podcast? It's like your weekend of basic training every month or weekend of, of no, service? I'm here. I'm here. I'm ready. It's like Kertur in Vietnam. It was Tuesday morning and the rain wouldn't stop falling down sideways. I was laying in the trenches with Oppenheimer and Leibowitz. Good morning, Vietnam. Our Gentile of the Week is poet Christian Wyman, who is who is Gentilic. Like there's actually talk about Jesus in this interview. Like he comes with real Gentile game. And our Jew of the Week is author Roya Hakakian, whose most recent book is A Beginner's Guide to America. A really extraordinary treatment of what it is to be an immigrant from someone who came here after the revolution in Iran in 1979 and remembers what it was like to walk into the supermarket <laughs> and see stuff on the shelves. And it, it's it's a great book and a great interview. Before we get to them, I know that you, Stephanie and Liel, have a big update because season two of a certain brilliant podcast that you guys produce has launched. Can I give you a quick bullet point about me? Please. Three bullet points. The first is I am ramping up the publicity for my book about the Tree of Life shooting going to be all over the place in the fall. I've already got Seattle, San Diego, Baltimore, Palm Beach, and I'm going to miss you guys, but I'm going to be like October, November. I'm not going to see you. I'm not going to see my family. I'm just going to see Jews across America. Which are you more excited about? Having time off from us or time off from our children? <laughs> I'm so excited because, you know, it takes so long to write a book. Like it was 2019 where you basically spent the entire year in Pittsburgh. It was insane. Every week you'd go there twice or once and then you wrote the book. Then it had to get edited, and now it's going to be out, and it's so exciting. So what are you doing in preparation? It's obviously, it's, it's a sad story, and I'm not, like, one would wish that this book did not get written or have to be written. That said, I'm pleased to be able to tell the stories of a lot of the amazing people who helped carry the Squirrel Hill community through all this. And, you know, right now, I mean, we're literally wrapping up, you know, it's going to press very soon. Like they've now told me no more changes, no more taking in and out commas. <laughs> it is Isn't like the worst. The door has closed and I can't even look at it now for fear the of book is sealed. The book is <laughs> first. It was written. Avinu Malkinu. You sound so much like Barbara Streisand there. Also look a lot like her too. <laughs> What's going to be your hair plan for the for the book tours, more importantly? I'm going to talk to my stylist, obviously. Anyway, I'm, I'm just really excited to get back and see people. As you guys know, one of the great pleasures of doing the podcast is going around the country and talking to people outside of the New York, L.A. flyover corridor. And this will be an opportunity to do that. So that's number one. I'm really excited. Number two, I've been trying to write a little short book this summer about my late grandpa, Walter, not the one married six times, but the former communist. And I discovered this week he had an FBI file. <laughs> I was talking to a historian <laughs> who had researched the early days of the Philadelphia Teachers Union when it was communist controlled, like took its orders from Moscow. And I mentioned my grandpa's name and he said, oh yeah, he has a file. I said, what? He said, yeah, there's an FBI file on Walter Kirshner. He said, I, I never requested it, but I've requested the files of friends of his in which his file is mentioned. And this guy gave me the file number. He said, go do a Freedom of Information Act request and they will send you his file. Now, some files are really like schwach, really lame. Like it's just a couple pages of notes. Like they, they photocopied his entry in the, in the white pages. Here was his phone number, but they never did anything with it. Some of them, they wiretapped you. They went through your trash. They found out who you were sleeping with, what pills you were popping, everything. 
So it could be this amazing source from 1952 on my grandpa's daily life with stuff I didn't know. I think we should pull we should pull out Geraldo Rivera and, and we should open the file on the air. It should be a live reveal. We are absolutely doing that. The problem is the backup for FOIA requests for FBI files is somewhere from two to five years. So we can't stop doing the podcast until I get my grandpa's FBI file sometime in the second Mike Pence administration. Third... I've just been gardening up a storm. As readers of my newsletter know, I yanked weeds for an hour this morning from 7 to 8 a.m. And I feel like a, a new man. You feel like a man. Guys, there's a product, an audio product that is not unorthodox, that I have nothing to do with, that you two produce. Do, do you want to tell the listeners what happened last week? Yes. The second season of Hebrew School just launched with two amazing new hosts, Frank Spiro and Sabrina Marielle Friedman. Hey, Sabrina, how are you doing? <sighs> Hi, Frank. I'm trying to learn some Hebrew words, but I'm having a really hard time. Oh, really? What's confusing you? Well, some of these words just don't make any sense. For example, in Hebrew, who is me? Who are you? You're, you're Sabrina. I, I, I know I'm Sabrina, but that doesn't help me remember who is me. Sabrina, what are you talking about? <sighs> I'm talking about how to say who in Hebrew. Not to mention that the word for he in Hebrew is who. Wait, I thought you just said who is me. Exactly. Who is me and he is who. And did you know what else? She is he. Wait, 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 wait. Are you trying to tell me that she is he and he is who and who is me? Exactly. Hey, I got a headache. You know what I think we need? What? I think we need to go to Hebrew school. We put out a call on this here show for, for new hosts. That was a, a few months back. And we heard from a lot of amazing people. We had so many candidates. It was really incredible. But the greatest thing was that Frank, who is one of our hosts, his father applied for him. <laughs> so his father was like, I heard you guys need a host. I think my son would be great for it. And we- I think he's great. It was amazing. And so we emailed Frank because we had all his information. We had his like reel. We had everything. And you said, you don't know us. The email actually read, I heard you're looking for a wife. And then it was crossed out, <laughs> podcast host. We do an interview with him. We do a run through. And I was like, so how much do you actually know about this situation? And he was like, I know a little bit. <laughs> sort of like, I know my dad did something. Anyway, so we have Sabrina and Frank. They are our amazing new hosts. And what we thought we would do, Mark, because you know how that show, like, Are You Smarter Than a Fifth Grader, like, seems mm -hmm. to still be on the air somehow? Um, mm -hmm. Like, Jeff Foxworthy? Giving Jeff Foxworthy a, a reason to be. I think that we should do, like, Are You Smarter Than a Hebrew School Contestant? Sure. Because those kids are aged, like, 7 to 12, and they answer very hard questions. It's like games, it's riddles, it's songs. And I thought it might be fun to, like, test you a little bit. Oh, okay. I'm in. And because we know your love of all things linguistic, we figured we would let you play one of the little gamelets, the mini games on the show called Maze, which is, of course, Hebrew for what is this? Josh Cross, roll the tape. Our first game is called Maze. Maze. Maze is Hebrew for what is this? We are trying to identify the right Hebrew translation for an English word. Sabrina and I will both tell you what we think the right Hebrew word is, but only one of us has the right answer. One of my favorite things about summer is sitting outside, eating some hot dogs, and watching a beautiful fireworks display. So today, we are going to try and figure out how to say fireworks in Hebrew. Ready? Yep. Okay, I'll go first. The Hebrew word for fireworks is zikukim. I like it. The word sort of sounds like fireworks, all explosive and bright. Zikukim. 
Yeah, that's nice. But the truth is that the Hebrew word for fireworks is kochve esh, which literally translates to fire stars. Can't you picture those kochve esh exploding in the sky while you eat some ice cream? Okay, Seth. So you've heard two options for how to say fireworks in Hebrew. Zikukim and kochve esh. Which do you think is the true definition? All right, Mark. Okay, well, this is actually a trick question because in sort of old, early days, you know, Yeshuv Hebrew, they tried to make it kochve esh. But actually, when, when it got real and people started populating the land, some stoner on, you know, a moshav in the north one night set off some fireworks. <laughs> it was like, hey, what should, he was from, you know, Sheepshead Bay. And he's like, what should we call these? Uh, zikukim. So it's actually both. Literary fireworks is kokfeesh. And, you know, vernacular <laughs> fireworks, when you set them off for a holiday or something, zikukim. That's like a great Talmudic disputation. Yeah. All right, let's see, Mark. And if you, let's see if you get your like winner thing or not. Ooh, that's hard, but I think I'm going to go with Kokhme Esh because I I remember hearing Esh before and I'm pretty sure it's fire. Oh, it is fire, but unfortunately, the answer is Ziku Kim. Uh, Although I still think Firestar sounds cooler and is definitely the name of my next band. Let me know when your band starts practicing. My bagpipe playing has really improved since last week. What do I get? Absolutely nothing. Yeah. <laughs> so if our listeners want to hear this awesome show, Hebrew School, where, where do they go? They can go to tabletmag.com slash Hebrew School or just wherever you are listening to this here podcast, just type Hebrew School into that search bar and you will find it. And there's new episodes every Sunday morning. Nice, wholesome fun for the whole fam. Whole fam. <laughs> News of the Jews. About a week ago, I read that summer beach read novelist, poet of Nantucket, the bard of Nantucket, Ellen Hildebrand, whose novels are all mid-level, high trash, low literary, you know, good stuff, stuff I love to read, romances. I think people are going to get mad at you for that. No, no, no. I mean that as, I mean that all as compliments. Yes. Do you read her? Do you read Ellen Hildebrand? No, but I know people who do. Right. So as, as do I. Some of my best friends do. Right. No, I think, I bet her stuff is utterly addictive and the kind of stuff I would love. And it's all set on Nantucket and, you know, there's love and romance and adultery and murder. And her new novel, Golden Girls, which was recently published, was criticized online because that's where critics go to criticize things for a reference to Anne Frank. The line in question, there was a character named Vivi or Vivi who is going to stay in the attic of a friend's house in Nantucket. And they have the, the line of dialogue, you're suggesting I hide here all summer like Anne Frank? Then, according to Publishers Marketplace, multiple Instagram users complained about the line, including one who called it a, quote, horrifically anti-Semitic joke. Hildebrand initially defended herself. She said, if you read my novel, Summer of 69, you know that I absolutely revere the story of Anne Frank. The line was not a throwaway slip. It was an expression of angst from someone who felt marginalized socioeconomically. But nonetheless, if I offended you, I owe you a huge apology. So a couple things to say. First of all, as our apology maven Marjorie Ingle would say, you never begin an apology by saying, if I offended you, I'm sorry, right? Either you did something wrong, in which case you apologize, or you didn't, in which case 
don't. But don't say, well, if I offended you, here you go. I'll throw you, I'll throw you a bone of an apology. But the news story is, I knew where this was going to end. She is now asking that the line be deleted from future copies oh. of the book for crying out loud. We're allowed to use dialogue that's actually stuff people would say. And it's totally believable that she would say, I got to hide in the attic like Anne Frank, because people would say stuff like that. Yeah, like if you say girl in the attic for the summer, you're like, oh, Anne Frank. Oh, right. no, oh no, it's actually Vivi. It's Vivi. So here's the thing. I think that Anne Frank is public domain. Anne Frank is bagels, right? Like we don't control her story. She has gone so far beyond. She's almost like apocryphal at this point, right? Like there's a way in which everyone uses her story to tell some other story of their own design. And we don't, we've almost lost the narrative on what, what actually happened to her. I mean, she's just so surpassed. She's like a pop culture thing now. It's very weird and we have to just accept it. And like, you can't get mad that someone references Anne Frank in their book. You know, if we're, if, if we're being honest, I'm like doubling down on what you're saying. Not only do I think that she's gone big, I think by design, Anne Frank was always bagels because the whole point, <laughs> as, as our dear friend Dara Horn points out brilliantly in her soon to be published book, People Love Dead Jews, which is the best titled totally. nonfiction work I've ever come across, our own books included. The whole point of Anne Frank's diary was, let's take a book and end it with this like life-affirming, sweet sentiment, like deep down inside, I believe people are good, which not only allows the whole world to sort of forgive themselves for, you know, that that little slip up with killing the six million Jews, but also kind of pretends like the Jews who were killed were just, you know, there were people Anne Frank wasn't, you know, a Hasidic little boy. She wasn't, you know, someone who looked and felt too particularly Jewish. She looked, you know, universal. She looked just like us. And so she belongs to all of us. And, and she also absolves us in her death because she says everyone is okay and she forgives everyone. But Liel and Stephanie, Dara's point is that that was offensive from the beginning. Yeah, that's my point too. I'm going to take a middle path here and say that, yes, it's not surprising. This is what we've always done with Anne Frank, which is universalizer and forget the particularity that not only was she in the attic because she was a Jew, but also when she was forcibly removed from the attic, she was then murdered. So it is important. I think it is important to remember that it's also tiresome and true that everyone forgets it. But that said, because everyone forgets it, it's okay in a novel to have someone forget it. I, I just don't like, so what? The point is that our novels are now going to be, going to whitewash the fact that people use Anne Frank in, yeah. uh, it's just. So Ellen, Ellen Hildenbrand, if you want to make this okay, you have to rewrite the book so that Vivi gets taken to a concentration camp on Martha's Vineyard, the Chilmark death camp, if you will. <laughs> Uh, and then ties there, and then it's fine. Chilmarkhausen. I, I think the, I think there was a death camp on Martha's Vineyard. It was called Chappaquiddick. It's a death camp of one. Ooh, <laughs> political <laughs> magusta. Wow. Actually, can you not reference Chappaquiddick? That's really, really offensive. Yes. It's really offensive to dead Irish senators. <laughs> <laughs> But on to happier stuff, to uh, the Israeli elections. Liel, in 47 seconds or less, catch us up. So we're going here from the stupid to the truly absurd. And this is really, at this point, this is not, this is not political commentary. This is theater criticism at this point, because just to understand what's happening in Israel right now, imagine that Tupac and Biggie were still alive. Dude, they are still alive. Come on. Of course they are. They're alive. Uh, they're living they're on a beach. Elvis. They're on a beach in the Mediterranean. They're with Elvis and Kurt Cobain now. <laughs> That's right. Imagine the two of them got together and decided to form a government 
with foghorn leghorn. That's a joke, boy. You missed it. Went right past you. You gotta keep, I say you gotta keep on your toes. And you're like, two of you are feuding rappers who agree on nothing, and the third is a cartoon rooster. What am I looking at? It is the most incredible coalition of absurdities you've ever seen. It is headed by two people who agree on precisely zero, except for the fact that they really, really, really hate Benjamin Netanyahu. These people are former B-movie actor and very handsome dude, Yari Lapid. Oh, so dreamy. Yari Lapid is so dreamy. Pretty dreamy. I'm, I'm going to give him that. And hardened settler, soldier, high-tech maven, Naftali Bennett. Tinker Taylor, settler spy. Is that what you're saying? That's exactly right. They share precisely nothing, nothing ideological in common. And the person that they needed to make this coalition work is the head of Israel's local branch of the Muslim Brotherhood. And I'm not saying this is a value judgment. I'm saying this is a statement of fact. And so, for example, one thing that they had to promise for this coalition to work is that they will have no legislation that promotes LGBTQ anything, to which most of the gay community in Israel said, that's okay, because we really hate Bibi. So if Bibi truly succeeds in uniting all various facets of Israeli society who agree on precisely nothing just because they hate him so, the man deserves a Nobel Peace Prize. It's amazing. I have two comments on this. One is I kept reading in the kind of postmortem on Netanyahu's political career, which may have been written too soon, but I kept reading explainers that said one reason that he was so successful at this, that, or the other is because he spoke flawless, unaccented English due to his time growing up in Lower Marion. Wait, he grew up in Lower Marion? For a number of years. His father, I think, was wow. teaching at Penn. Him and Kobe, he, man. He did high school in America, right? And I just want to say, it's not unaccented. There's this weird way in which people who love him or revere him or are just kind of mesmerized by him, maybe they hate him, but they're hate mesmerized, they think that actually... He speaks unaccented English, but I hear the guy and it's like, you know, it's it's Liel's character, Shlomo. He's not quite Shlomo-esque, but you're absolutely right. He's not unaccented. Like you speak unaccented English, Liel. Bibi speaks, speaks, you know, Hasbara, speaks, uh, you know, consulate in Tempe. He speaks Hasbaratis. He speaks Hasbaratis. Israel has the right to defend itself. By the way, this is the quibble to end all quibbles, Mark. I love it. I'll show you real quibble, real nitpicking. I'll, here's a nit I'll pick. Leo, you say Yair Lapid was a B-list, a B-movie actor. Have you seen his movies? And are they truly B-movies or are some of them A-minus movies? I would say they're B in the... So his his big kind of role <laughs> is as the, the dreamy... I believe he played a, a food engineer named Noach in this movie based... Basically the Israeli version of Sex in the City. He Ooh. was not the Mr. Big, but the Aiden character, I think. Oh, okay. It was one of those like total like disasters of a movie based on a really popular romantic novel by a journalist who's now kind of like gone full right wing and hates him. But it's kind of delicious. Be I will say that then he became a, a talk show host and was probably A- minus as that. But as far as ideas go, there are none for him, which may be good. But to me, he's like a little, he's a little Anderson Cooper. He's a little Entertainment Tonight. Like he was everywhere. Little Billy Bush. Aiden was played by John Corbett, right? Who also played the dad yes. in the Beezus and Ramona movie that my kids love so much. And this is not to be confused with the John Corbett I went to high school with, class of 92. Who's a jerk. You know, he was a good guy, but way too tall, like six, offensively tall, six, seven or something. Can I just think of him as John Corbett, who is sort of a B-plus movie? You TV? can think of him as Joe Corbett. You could also think of him as the person who will be running again for elections in probably eight months. <laughs> 
uh, bringing about BB's 19th electoral quasi-victory. By the way, one of the other laws that they all are really rushing to pass is that if uh, you're a prime minister for more than eight years, you can't be not only prime minister, but member of Knesset ever again. Guess who this this law is tailored <laughs> to? So this to me is like, first of all, by the way, this is the, <laughs> I like the like Beezus and Ramona, Sex in the City. This is the Israeli election analysis. You are not getting anywhere else. So to me, this is like a Marvel movie where all these people come together to stop their unlikely foe, which is like, the one thing they have in common, but they all kind of hate each other. So he's Thanos Netanyahu. A lot of people are heartened by this because they're like, look at all these people coming together from all sorts of parts of society, all parts of the political spectrum, just to like stop Bibi. And what this makes me think of is if the entire Democratic field for president in 2020 ran together against yeah. Donald Trump. Yeah. So, no, but like, here's the thing. It's not, no, it's it's way weirder than that because actually, look, verifiably, the majority of, of Israelis lean right. They vote for parties that are either center or center right. It's not just that the Democrats, the left got together. There's almost no left left in Israel. It's that the left and the center and a bunch of the right decided to get together and decided that while they may have some values, policies, beliefs, the number one through 100 priority is that they really hate this dude. It's like Mitch McConnell and Elizabeth Warren got together with Dwayne The Rock Johnson to say like, (laughs) we are forming a party and we'll worry about what we do later. Just like, let's not elect this guy. They say, make way, make way. Right. I'm into this, but so Leo, what's your guess for what happens? Do they take like- Election in 15 months. So we'll see you back here. Keeping things on an upward trend of positivity. Uh, Stephanie, would you bring us the news from Arizona? I will, happily. No, I will not happily do this, but I will do this because you have asked me to. Basically, Arizona is like, (laughs) I don't even know how to set this one up, to be perfectly honest. What we have in our script just says Arizona to use Zyklon B. This is from The Washington Post. Arizona is taking steps to use hydrogen cyanide, the deadly gas used during the genocide perpetrated by the Nazis at Auschwitz and other extermination camps to kill inmates on death row. This means that Arizona is going like way, way, way retro and bringing back Zyklon B, you may know it from the Holocaust, to put people to death. You may remember it from some productions as Auschwitz. It's in. Insane. And I kind oh of want to think, God. I kind of like have this imagining that they like found some cans left over like somewhere and they were like, I think this might still be good. Right. Who manufactures Zyklon B? Do you just go on Amazon and just, you know, type in Zyklon B and you can you can prime it there? Honestly, a- probably. You could probably figure out how to make it. That's depressing. <laughs> There's a company that makes a gas that murders people? This is insane. Can I just say like, Coming clean here, obviously I have a a stake in this. My wife does death penalty defense, but could we just get rid of the death penalty for crying out loud? Just Arizona, if you want to punish someone convicted of murder, make them keep living in Arizona. That's it. You've got, (laughs) you've got, just, you know, put them outside for an hour a day from 1 to 2 p.m. Why? It's a dry heat. It's fine. Make them experience the culture of Arizona. And I know, by the way, (laughs) we did one of our great live shows ever there. We have sweet friends from Arizona. Stephanie is still on the group text chat. I'm on the text message chain. They're going to be very upset about this. I'm sorry. Sorry, guys. It's a nice place to retire to. And I hear it has a nice Jewish community. But my idea of. We're never going to get another live show there. I have to say, just look, just make them live in Arizona. You've done it. You've you've succeeded. You don't have to go all, all outfits on them. Here's the other problem. I mean, in addition to like the major weird, gross associations with the Holocaust, 
critics of of this of this development say that it's like produced some of the most just like disturbing executions. Like that's Ugh. it's not even f- efficient. It's horrific in every sense. And you're just like, ugh. Let us join Israel, Canada, and England and get rid of the death penalty. Let's just do that. How how about that? Let's let's leave let's leave the community of Saudi Arabia and Uganda and Iran and join the community of Israel and Canada and get rid of the death penalty. And look, you don't even need like good reasons. Look, Mark, like you, I, I'm I'm very staunchly and passionately opposed to the death penalty. But even if you weren't and, and you're looking for good reasons, if the Nazis did something like and you're now doing the exact same thing, stop. 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 Just, just how about not killing people, Arizona? It's not hard. Uh-huh. Our Jew of the Week is my friend, Roya Hakakian. She is a Persian-American Jewish author and poet and TV producer and other stuff whose newest book is called A Beginner's Guide to America. It's a portrait of what it's like to arrive here, to get off the boat or the plane or cross the border and be confronted with this beautiful, great, crazy land. It's an incredibly moving book and we had a very moving conversation. Here's Roya Hakakian talking a couple months ago with me and Stephanie. Welcome, Roya. Hi, Stephanie. I'm delighted to be with you. Roya, what is this book that you've written? The book sort of disguises itself as a guide for newcomers, and it is a guide in some ways, but it's also a way of allowing the native-born Americans to eavesdrop on immigrant conversation and rediscover America through the perspective of people who see it for the first time. So I don't want people who are not immigrants to assume that they can't use the book or enjoy it. You know, in 2016, when Trump came to power and all this anti-immigrant sentiments were on the rise, I thought that this was my call to service, that I had to say something. I had to do something about all this. And I started reading a lot of the pro and con debates on either side of the conversation or the actual fight. And I felt that neither was converting the other side. In other words, everybody was just talking to their own crowd. And so then I thought, what if I could find a way of talking to people on both sides in a way that they don't expect it? So one of the things that I've done is that I have tried to bring people as close to, if not inside the immigrant experience. And I thought, If people come up very close and personal to the thoughts, to the anxieties, to the initial feelings and worries and joys of what it's like to arrive here and see things for the first time, then maybe they will not buy into all the fears or all the fear-mongering propaganda that was going on. And, And that basically was my intention. It wasn't to say immigration is good or bad or anything. It was just to say that you know, by and large, immigrants aren't here because they want to commit crime and rape or steal. They're here because because they want to begin anew. And you have a unique vantage point, right? You came to the United States. Is it on political asylum? Is that correct? I did. I came as a refugee. And, and you know, it's really funny. I came with a backpack 
and actually no clothes. So I remember when my sister-in-law took me to a store called Bradley. I remember walking through the teen section and seeing colors and fabrics I had not seen in my entire life. Seeing, you know, sequin things and lacy things and frilly things and thinking, wow, all these things that I never saw in war are here. So yes, I came as a refugee and if Trump had managed to pass the laws that he wished, I would have never got into this country. I didn't speak English. I didn't have any money. And I had no skills. I was 18. So to be clear, you, you came in 1984, right? You left Iran in... I came in 1985. I left Iran in 84. Yeah. So you came in under an entirely different regime. And one of the things I find so magical about this book is you talk about, you know, not just the colors, but the different social arrangements in America. And it's a very, I mean, I think it's, it's fair to say it's an extremely patriotic book. I mean, you talk about what's difficult about arriving, but you also talk about, for example, how magical it is to be able to, to return stuff to a store that you've bought already which I gather you can't, you, you couldn't do that in Iran. I mean, this is news to me. I thought this was actually a universal law of nature. I thought this was like gravity. <laughs> no? No, you can't return a thing. You see, first of all, I thought Americans are losing sight of all the great things that we have here. And then I thought, when we think about democracy, we think about elections, you know, we think about the right to speech. But what makes our lives pleasant on a daily basis is not elections. It's the fact that we can take something and return it to the store and no one will ask us why. And these things happen because the individual has rights, because as a result of the individual having rights, then the consumer has rights. We can go to the park and, you know, however beautiful or ugly we are, we can lie down on the grass and listen to our own music. And, you know, if we have our lover by our side, we can give her or him a kiss. These things wouldn't happen, at least in the country where I'm coming from. You know, you could get hauled away to prison for years and years for doing just that. So I think one of the things that we need to remember as Americans is that, yes, we can argue about our elections and voting rights and freedom of speech and all those things. But there are fundamentally important rights and beautiful things that are embedded in the way we live today that we can't recognize because we have been born into them and raised with them. So we can't see them. We think they're part of the decor, but they're not. And therefore, we need to come together first to recognize them and then to begin to cherish them and then fight for them. As you know, I grew up in Great Neck on Long Island, which is a big, big hub of, of Persian Jews. I know from Persian Jews, it was very, you know, that was something all my friends' parents had come over in 79, the Iranian Revolution. I knew a lot about that part of the world. Could you tell us a little bit about the Persian Jewish community, where they're from, why they don't call themselves Iranian-American? I mean— What's your deal, basically? You're basically saying, what's your deal? <laughs> just for someone who's never who's never met someone from Iran, you know, just sort of represent the entire community for us. <laughs> no pressure. I can't represent the entire community. But, but I can explain why I think— some of my comrades use the term Persian. You know, obviously, the United States and Iran have been at a Cold War stance since 1979. And, and so it kind of becomes an unpleasant thing to mention that you're Iranian and have to explain a great deal that, oh, you're an Iranian, but you also object to the regime and, and you fled yourself and you're not on their side. So it, it makes it hairy and complicated. So 
to simplify matters and to kind of avoid all of that, a lot of my fellow Iranian Americans call themselves Persian. I, on the other hand, and this is why I said I can't represent them, I introduced myself as Iranian American because I would like those questions to come to me. And I would like for people to ask why I call myself Iranian and what do I think about Iran and, and you know, what do I have to say for myself, in which case I think things get exciting and, and I welcome it. So, you know, when you think Persian, you think about rugs and cats. <laughs> but when you think Iran, you think about, you know, Ayatollahs and the nuclear standoff with Israel. So I have very little to say about rugs and cats. So I go the other way. On the other hand, I love rugs and Stephanie loves cats. And I don't think either <laughs> one of us likes nuclear proliferation. No, not so. <laughs> Neither do I. The book is very funny in a lot of places. One of the, my favorite places is the part where you talk about how you, you have to master the American art of making canine conversation. How adorable. Is it a he or a she? You have to also ask permission before laying a hand on that venerated fur and to exercise curiosity. What breed is he? So... I, of course, I'm a dog lover. I still, however, when I see people who have their dogs in little sweaters and little booties, have this sense of, of alienation, like I've moved to a different country because I wouldn't do that. I'm curious if there are things that even after becoming an American and a citizen and raising American children, are there still things where you look at the way Americans do things and think, oh, come on, guys? Yeah, no, definitely. So the venerating the pets, I mean, I love pets. My dog is right here. But what you just explained, I have a neighbor who cooks for her dog. I mean, okay, <laughs> I love my dog. I give him treats, but I wouldn't cook for my dog on a daily basis. The other thing is I never get over the fact that it's such a production to invite people over for a meal in America that people have to plan and, you know, say you bring this and I bring that. I remember our duo was open all the time and whatever we had, we just always said, you know, come over for dinner and, you know, Somehow there was always enough. So these are the small ways that, first of all, remind me of what it is that I can contribute. But they also, in some ways, remind me of what it is that the native-born forget about the special gifts that we have. So if the book is patriotic, it's only patriotic because I am putting a magnifying glass on the small things that people no longer see because they've always been there. And, and so I, I bring them out. I display them before everyone. Another great example is that even lawsuits, you couldn't do that in most parts of the world. You can't go somewhere and say, so-and-so mistreated me or the coffee was too hot or whatever. But even when they're absurd, they all stem from the fact that we as individuals cannot be dismissed. And that's the part that sticks out to me, that we have created a system in which the individual has a voice and will not be dismissed. And these are the reasons that I think we can, despite our differences, still come together and fight for the soul of this country. Speaking of our differences, you wrote an entry for Tablet's book, The 100 Most Jewish Foods, a highly debatable list. You wrote the entry on Persian rice, and you basically said, like, Give me none of these bland Ashkenazi foods. I want the tadig. I want the crispy rice, as, as food blogs call it here. Could you tell us a little bit about some of your favorite Iranian foods that you've brought over and sort of what makes Jewish Iranian dishes different? So this is interesting because, yes, just yesterday, I gave my recipe for celery stew to a friend who lives in Europe. And he's not Jewish, and he makes 
Jews all the time. And he thought that the Jewish Iranian celery stew was exactly the same as the non-Jewish Iranian celery stew. And with all due respect, the non-Jewish Iranian celery stew is perfectly fine, but ours is just better. So uh, I have to say, my mother used to add to the celery stew that people usually make with just celery and some parsley and meat. My mother added a lot of fresh parsley and mint and plum. So the celery stew came out, it had this sweet and sour, tangy taste, and we often had it for Shabbat and it was to die for So I have always wondered why we seem to add some of the same touches from the Ashkenazi or Eastern European cuisine to the Persian Jewish recipes. What we seem to do, you know, we add a lot of raisins and plums and dry fruits to a lot of the foods that we make, which are somewhat identical to the non-Jewish versions, but just a little tastier and better. That sounds amazing. Well, it's funny because, I mean, a Jewish Persian rice would never have dairy in it. I mean, they might, but most likely a more traditional one wouldn't because it would be eaten with meat at a meal. Right. Until I came to America, I had never had dessert or cookies or anything tasty over Passover because these things just didn't exist. So when I came here and saw the, you know, the array of Passover foods, I thought, you people, you have no idea what suffering we actually, yeah. soft. we actually went through. When you look at the American immigration debate, what are we all getting wrong? Like, how can we think more clearly for those of us who think that entirely open borders are probably not feasible, but who also don't want a kind of anti-immigrant hyper-nationalism? How do we find or think through the right middle path for immigration? I'm really glad you raised that because Part of the reason why I, you know, in 2016, I kept reading what the left was putting out and what the right was putting out and not finding what I wanted was that nobody was listening to the other side and everybody was getting something right and everybody was getting something wrong. So the thing that we don't get right, those of us who support immigrants and immigration, is the fact that open borders or even increasing the quotas to accept refugees and immigrants will not solve the problem of the refugee crisis that already exists and will be coming in the future years. The problem is so big and will get even bigger that it is not a matter of any single country trying to raise their numbers to solve the problem. Our environmental crisis is growing so large that vast swaths of land throughout the world will become uninhabitable. And so it doesn't matter how many people we accept, we still won't be able to accept them all. So the better thing to do, the wiser thing to do, is to try to figure out the big problem and to try to figure out how we can keep these people living inside their own country, which they would prefer to do anyway if they could. So that's problem number one. And problem number two is that the reason we come here and the reason America, with all of its shortcomings, has been a role model for the rest of the European and Western world in assimilating and resettling immigrants is because we allow people like me who come here with nothing to in fact enter and then find their way and, and, you know, and make lives for themselves. And I think it is in this process of coming in at zero and then rising 
that we not only build lives, but we also build a sense of patriotism. I was telling someone yesterday that you know, if I had money when I came and if I was accepted because I spoke excellent English and I had great skills to offer this country, then I wouldn't become patriotic because that what was so great about America opening its doors onto me. I was great anyway. They needed me. But what builds a sense of patriotism and what brings us together is that we share in this common narrative of I was nothing. I was allowed to come into this country anyway, and then I worked hard and I became somebody. And therefore, because they took me in when I had nothing and I was no one, therefore I love them and therefore I'm loyal to them. And I think this is a very important narrative and we do this well. And if we cease to do this, then we cease to be this relatively successful, although flawed land of immigrants that we have always been. Roya Hakakian is the author of A Beginner's Guide to America for the Immigrant and the Curious. I have read it, and it's a great book for someone who grew up here and has never immigrated anywhere and doesn't know what it is to be an immigrant, but needs to be reminded of just the small little things that make our country so freaky deekily awesome. And also, you know, troubled sometimes. So, Roya, thank you for being our Jew of the Week. Thank you so much. I love being with you. Time for some pod biz. Unpacking the book, the series I host with the Jewish Book Council and the Jewish Museum is starting back up this month. On March 28th, I will be at the Jewish Museum in conversation with authors Jordan Salama and Elizabeth Graver about Mizrahi and Sephardic diaspora journeys. Then in April, also at the Jewish Museum, I'll be talking with Rabbi Diana Fursco and author Maurice Samuels about what their new books tell us about the continued rise of anti-Semitism from Dreyfus to today. In May, we're heading to Zoom for a virtual conversation with Rabbi Sharon Browse and Shai Held about their new books. You can find all of that info and more at tabletmag.com slash unorthodoxlive. Our second Beautifully Jewish Craft Along is underway. To join our growing community, head to tabletm.ag slash beautiful. I also wanted to share this delightful review on Apple Podcasts. For this non-American goy, Unorthodox is a weekly compulsion. Three very different characters deliver no-holds-barred perspectives from the Jewish part of people's identities. Well, in Liel's case, Jewish slash American slash Israeli slash his own universe. All are welcome and all can contribute. Why only four stars? Sometimes I can't keep up with the spoken delivery speeds, a problem when you've become a global phenomenon, as you have. Well, non-American Goy, we love you, even if we talk too fast for you. The rest of you, please go to Apple Podcasts and leave us a review. And you know Joshua Molina will be reading it, so make it a good one. Okay, back to the show. Tell me, tell me in the day or the night, would it kill you to call or write? To the mailbox. One letter this week. It is choice. Hi, Unorthodox team. I was out for a sunny walk today listening to this week's episode, and I had to stop in my tracks when I heard Liel's advice to Matt Sheeran. What a defeatist attitude to split our tribe into Camp A or B, as if to hearken back to Bush Jr.'s you're either with us or against us policy. I care deeply about Israel and want it not only to survive, but thrive. You can debate policy, be pro this or anti that, but we as diaspora Jews need to face some uncomfortable realities and facts on the ground. Israel is an occupying power. 
maybe for a good reason, be it security or just because might makes right. But it is occupying another people who don't want them there. You can say there's no one to negotiate with, but that still means they're occupying a people who don't want you there. I believe that this occupation and turning a blind eye to all that comes with it is corrupting the soul of Israel and is starting to corrupt the Jewish soul as well. I want all Israelis and Palestinians to be safe and feel secure in their homes without a bomb or missile attack. You don't have to choose and take a side in order to face this truth. I believe as progressive Zionists, we need to speak up when a member of our mishpocha is being belligerent. And only when we as Jews reject this camp A, camp B absolutism, a tactic that seems to suggest just keep quiet and put your head down, will we be able to do some real tikkun olam on the ground. Yours, David, Canada. Liel and I have talked about this offline. I did think that the general attitude of that piece you wrote in Tablet and talked about for Matt Sharon's letter, that there are two camps pick one. I think it was obviously a rhetorical move. I didn't believe you really believed it, but it was the most unliel thing you ever said because you're a guy who likes dwelling in the eccentricities and the contradictions. So it not only struck me as wrong and defeatist, but also it was like, where's my boy Liel? I'm with David in Canada. The piece was written with immense sadness and not, not a hint of belligerence or celebration. I was not prescribing a choice. I was describing a reality that is creeping on us. And may I be wrong, nothing will give me greater pleasure than to write our our Canadian pal and say, boy, was I mistaken. I fear that I'm not. Well, it was it was a normative claim in the sense you were saying you'll have to pick sides, but nobody has to. I mean, even if there are two camps, even if the camps were Trump and Bernie, well, <laughs> you're not for, I mean, in anything, you can always opt out into a kind what you were saying was you'll be irrelevant if you insist on not. Not, not if survival matters to you, a survival as, as a Jew. You know, at some point, yes, you do have to pick sides, which I know is a, is a, is a very weird choice. See, this is, this is where my un-American is. <laughs> this is where the Shlomo shines through. There are some things that are, that are so difficult for Americans to understand. Are you Israel-splaining to us? He's Shlom-splaining. You're Shlom-splaining? You're like, I'm oh, we benighted Americans. Well, look. You and your friendlies and your fishamajig <laughs> and your freebill. All I can say, and David in Canada will appreciate this, is that you know, you're a guy who thought that you would never like hockey. And what did it take to turn you into a hockey fan? One week of TiVo Correct. or whatever brand one uses these days. So you're saying one week in Canada and I come back singing Kumbaya. That's exactly right. And David from Canada calling you belligerent is like shots fired, right? Like that's serious. Because when a Canadian calls you names, you know you're in for a fight because those guys are tough. May you guys meet at a Tim Hortons and have a sandwich and a Labatt's and have a tacoon. I think it's possible. (laughs) I believe. If you have comments, belligerent or non, Send them to unorthodox at tabletmag.com or call us at 914-570-4869. Our Gentile of the Week, a real solid Gentile, is Christian Wyman. He's an award-winning poet who teaches at Yale, and he spoke with Mark and Liel about all sorts of things, gentilic and otherwise. Reading your work, there is some kind of fiery intensity. And I'm no student of poetry. I'm I'm no connoisseur of poetry, but I am a disciple of my rabbi, Rav Leonard Cohen, who taught me that the best poets are are the ones who appeal to women. And when that fails, appeal to God. 
there seems to be something very, very much in conversation, in, shall I say, urgent, desperate conversation with God in your work. So first of all, would you say that it's true? Second of all, do you feel yourself connecting to some kind of celestial sources as you work? The implicit assumption there is that I've failed with women, so I've moved on to the second part. <laughs> well, every good poet should, right? Yes, I do feel that there is some kind of a connection with an other to God. I would love to write a whole book of poems, though, that didn't use the word God, that had that connection, but didn't use, that didn't have recourse to that word. I don't think I'm at all unique in that. I think a lot of poets, American and otherwise, feel some sort of connection to another or the supernatural when they write. But then on the other side of it, they don't, aren't really willing to do anything with that. You know, it doesn't really mean anything on the other side of the experience. And I've always been very confused on the other side of the experience, sort of wondering, you know, what, what the hell just happened and what do I do with that? To me, that's always translated into an interest in religion. So in the ancient Jewish temple, there was really one other class of people other than the priests and the, the Levites who, who are allowed. And that was musicians. The understanding that those musicians slash poets who came and, and wrote and sang songs for God, because that was the only way that you could connect, you, you sort of transcended... You said something just now about trying to understand that that feeling. Is there an inherent sense of loss here? Because you know, most of us are removed from this temple-like experience. Most of us are removed from the kind of clear, pure, white heat of, of religious communal life. We're, we're trying to figure out these emotions when most of the infrastructure for figuring them out has been taken away from us. Am I again over-romanticizing it? Or, or is there sort of a, a double helix here of, of, of hope and heartbreak? This may be a distinction. I don't have an experience of formal religion that has ever held that power for me. I mean, my experience of art has always been more powerful than my experience of formal religion. And so I understand the loss intellectually, but I don't exactly feel it. I'm very hungry for a religious communal experience, but I don't find it. You were raised in an evangelical tradition. Is that, is that right? Yeah. And that was an intense experience in childhood. That was different. And, and I, no doubt, Part of the rapturous experience that I'm after in poetry comes out of that, emerges from that. Is it that once you're past childhood, it's just not there for you? Or is it just that, like, do you think that there could be a church and do you hunger for the church that could take you back to the excitement of group worship when you were 10? Oh, I don't think I could do that. That's just not me. But I just hunger for some sort of communal experience that, well, that I don't feel so apart from. But, you know, Marilyn Robinson has a beautiful, she wrote an absolutely beautiful essay. It's called Psalm 8, wondering why she finds herself driving home late at night to get to the church early in the morning. This placid congregational church in the middle of Iowa that demands virtually nothing. And she's wondering why she feels such hunger to be in a place from which she feels estranged, sort of fundamentally estranged. And yet she keeps on going all the time. And, and I understand that entirely. I feel a great hunger to be part of something from which I feel sort of fundamentally estranged. So you are one of two writers, Chris, who I think of as favored by, to be blunt, a lot of my liberal Christian friends and Marilyn Robinson's the other. Like you and Marilyn, like find me a certain kind of earnest divinity student who also writes, does creative writing. They love Christian Wyman and Marilyn Robinson. And I love Christian Wyman and Marilyn Robinson, but I'm not sure why either of you is a Christian. I understand why you're a theist, but I'm not sure what it is about the centrality of Jesus's message or the New Testament that makes you claim that title. So could you spell it out for me? Is it because the resurrection's true? Oh, it's because I understand God as being with us in suffering, and I'm only able to see that through Christ. But I've only actually seen that once in, in my own life, 
during one period of time when I was suffering terribly. And what scalded me then was, I would call it the love of Christ. And I can't get away from it. But you asked me, do I call myself a Christian? I do, but very, I feel very miserable about it. I always feel like I'm a terrible Christian, like I'm struggling to be a Christian. It feels to me like a constant sense of failure. I have no desire to convert you to Christianity, to my own misery. I believe that for me, it is the only path forward. That's the language that I know. So what made you see that, given that the version of that mythos that you grew up with wasn't attractive to you anymore? It had a lot to do with what I wrote. The revelations occurred in what I wrote. I would write something and realize what was occurring in, in what I wrote. That's what I mean by on the other side of it. You have to do something with that experience. But it also had to do with the love of my wife, the love of the other people in my life. I mean, Dietrich Bonhoeffer has a famous quote where he says, Christ is always stronger in our brother's heart than in our own, which I think is a wonderful way of thinking about it. You need it to be reflected back to you. I mean, there's a great Jewish quote. Abraham Joshua Heschel says, you know, faith is mostly faithfulness to the time when we had faith. And so I, if I think of those moments of intensity demanding something of me on the other side, I mean, his writing was actually very important for me in terms of thinking of myself as a Christian, oddly enough. You read him and said, yeah, nice, but I'm missing this one. Exactly. Special <laughs> suffering sauce. <laughs> <laughs> Which you'd think Heschel would have earned somewhere along the way, you know. Right, yeah. <laughs> Mr. Wyman, would you read us a poem? Yeah, it's called Ten Distillations. Could you tell us something about it, about when you wrote it or why you wrote it? I put this together over a period of years, actually. They're all in um, little couplets. They just came far apart. I didn't even, I had them written down in different places. And then I realized that they were all sort of forming a constellation of statements about theology. And so I put them all together. Ten distillations. Apophatic. He talked of nothingness until it wasn't. He bragged his gravity into God. Convert. What did he learn when he learned of his own bad heart? That scared and sacred are but a beat apart. Skeptic. His eyes were open, but his heart was shut. At the edge of every wonder, he said, but. Inspiration. The clearest morning is a thing to bear, he writes overjoyed once more by despair. Knowledge. To touch the summit was to learn so much, among which there are summits you can't touch. Via negativa. He names his love by naming what he hates. Joy generalizes. Pain individuates. Near death. Not beyond, but beyond my power to tell. What Eden's sweeter than the one in hell? Apophatic, again. Why wouldn't I praise the vacuous black? The one abundance I could trust was lack. Natural theology. Dawn. Light dew on the grass. The air cool. Clear. Nothing more, nothing mere. The end of prayer, that I might cry life like any bird belonging to its dawn. There it is. Thank you. So 
Christian Wyman, one of the things we always do when we have a Gentile on the show is ask them if they have any questions about Judaism. Anything we can tell you? I would like to ask very personal questions. Do you believe in God? Do you feel like you have a deep spiritual connection with God and inner life with God? Or is your Judaism simply cultural? I am going to respond in the spirit of this conversation with a with a sort of, shall we say, elevated answer. So with a couplet? With a couple. Oh my God, I wish <laughs> if I could write if I could write like this. Yeah, do. <laughs> um so Rav Soloveitchik, you know, known as as the Rav, you know you're great when you're known simply as the rabbi, wrote this kind of incredible book called The Lonely Man of Faith. I know it well. The idea there, which is sort of astonishing, is if you read the first couple of chapters of Genesis, you are witnessing two radically different accounts of the creation of man. You know, in the first, there is an Adam who is born, men and women together a person, a human being who is born in order to conquer the earth, in order to kill and eat the animals, in order to cultivate the land, in order to achieve and grow and do. And then comes a radically different account of a man who comes from the dirt, who has a woman fashioned out of his ribcage, a man who is a conservator, a caretaker, a gentle sort of shepherd and guardian of of all living things and all of God's other creations. And and Silvetic talks about the, the tension between them and says, well, obviously Adam the first and Adam the second are the same person. Obviously, this is this is the tension within us. And that tension is only resolvable when we are in communion with others and in communion with God. This sort of tripartite relationship of ourselves, another human being, and the creator is the only way to resolve this loneliness. I feel this very strongly. My identity as a Jew is completely melded to the existence of other Jews and to the existence of God. I can't understand them separately. I don't think I'm as far off from Liel's answer as maybe I am on some weeks. You offered a binary option there. You said, is it about God for you or is it cultural? And I think that's a, a useful mistake in how you posed the question. I hope you don't mind my saying which is that it's it's neither. You know, Jews spend a lot of time arguing, are we a, I mean, originally, of course, or one of the great ways of thinking about it in the Hebrew Bible is that it's a nation of people, right? In the Old Testament, Hebrew Bible, the Hebrews are warring with other, with other nations, right? And then they developed temple rights and became a religion. And then the temple was destroyed and they became sort of a modern religion, which is to say with a, a liturgy and a larger clergy caste than just a priesthood and so forth and so on. But then of course, throughout time, they developed food and secular literature and languages and culture, right? So what are we? Are we a religion? Are we a country? Are we a nation? Are we a tribe? Are we a culture? And, um, you know, I follow another great Rav, Adin Steinsaltz, who died within the last year, who said something that's so obvious that it takes a brilliant person to see it, which is that if you actually go back to, to Torah, what we are more than anything is a family, right? We're, we are those people who are descended from Abraham and Sarah as well as those who married into that family, as well as those who were adopted in or became fellow travelers. Not everyone is necessarily related by blood in a family, but we know what a family is. And to me, there's actually something holy about the idea of forming a culture around family traveling through time with books, right? That if you say, what are we doing here when we do synagogue? We are getting together with our relatives around the table and reading and rereading the same book. And that feels kind of epiphanic to me. Like when we do it, 
there's something so beautiful about it, right? If we weren't reading the same book, if it were a book club, if the book always changed, then it would be Oprah's book club or Reese's book club or Christian's book club. And that would be fine and that'd be fun, but there wouldn't feel anything holy about that. And if we weren't reading anything at all, if we were just having a potluck, then it's a family reunion. But the idea that we've made a religion out of repeated family gatherings through time with sacred texts feels extraordinary to me and it feels it feels godly, but nothing about it feels like it's related to a, a, a godhead, I guess is what I would say. But the practice feels entirely spiritual to me. And when I think about the times when I have had real profound emotional experience in Judaism, it is it is in Jewish worship around like people coming together around rites of passage or milestones with text and family. So no. Am I right to say that the concept of faith is not really? Yeah, there, to me, there's not really anything to take on faith, except that there's more going on than the simple chemical sort of naturalist reactions that the, the scientists would have us. That the shiver I feel at the idea that my daughter's going to read Torah on Saturday and that the Torah goes back to Sinai, or at least we can prove several thousand years, right? That that shiver is not simply chemical, I take on faith, I guess. But beyond that, I'm not so interested in faith. But I mean, Liel, would you, is, there's probably more faith in your, in your special sauce. There's, there's quite a bit. It's like one third. <laughs> <laughs> there's a wonderful poem, but you ever heard of a poet named Anna, Anna Kamienska, mm-hmm. Polish poet, called A Prayer That Will Be Answered? So it's very short. Lord, Lord, let me suffer much and then die. Let me walk through silence and leave nothing behind, not even fear. Make the world continue. Let the ocean kiss the sand just as before. Let the grass stay green so that the frogs can hide in it, so that someone can bury his face in it and sob out his love. Make the day rise brightly as if there were no more pain. And let my poem stand clear as a window pane bumped by a bumblebee's head. That's the whole poem. Amen. Yeah. So that's the world, the world as it is. But then there's that little, I mean, you talk about a ripple of spirit with your daughter reading the Torah. There's a little ripple of spirit that goes to the end. of It's as if you've got this cage of materialism make the world be just as it is. But then this ripple of spirit goes through at the end because that's a real prayer. You make my poem stand clear as a window pane bumped by a bumblebee's head and you realize that that's sort of just what happened. That's the clearest poem you'll ever read. Chris, thanks for being our Gentile of the Week. This has been lovely. Thanks for having me. Mazel tovs. Uh, Stephanie, have you a mazel tov? I do. I have a big, big mazel tov to fellow Duke alum John Shire. He was just named the next Duke basketball coach, but that is not why I give him a mazel tov. More importantly, he was named the Maccabi USA men's basketball head coach <laughs> for summer 2022. Now that. It's like that happened first. It didn't get as much publicity, obviously, as becoming the next Duke basketball coach. Is he Jewish? Of course. So who are the great Jewish Duke alumni? The Duke alumni, you, S. Ben Sputnik, Cohen, B. Cohen. There's a lot of great. Are there? Can you name a few others? If I say John Shire, do you know who that is? I haven't the faintest idea. Amazing. Oh, I love such a refreshing person to talk to, Mark. I love it. Wait, Josh, he, do you know who he is? 
Josh doesn't know who he is, and Josh is a big sports fan. Can I say my new hockey controversy? Be I think college sports. Are, <laughs> I know a lot of people say they're so much better because like they're actual like athletes playing, etc. And I know all the controversies, but like you know what I feel like? I feel like Steve Martin's the jerk. It's like old wine. I don't want old wine. I want new wine. It's like unprofessional sports. I don't want that. I want professional okay, sports. First of all, so after college. John Shire did a few things. Then he played for Maccabi Tel Aviv. He went to Israel. And why this is close to home for me is because my now husband, Ben Cohen, wrote the piece for Tablet as a freelancer about John Shire in Israel. And the best part of this piece, so it's sort of part of our Shidduch story. The best part of this piece, Ben Cohen, wonderful journalist, asked him, what does he eat? Like, what kind of food has he been eating there? And he says, Italian a Thai restaurant that's very good, and some American restaurants. And then he said, I haven't had a falafel yet. I'll probably be made fun of. I need to have a falafel and shawarma. Anyway, John Shire went to Israel, ate a lot of Thai food. Congratulations on being Duke's next coach. Was he A-Pi, ZBT, or Sammy? That's what I want to know. He was Duke basketball. He was Duke basketball. That's all you need to know. Got it. All right. Well, that was the first. That was a mega Mazel Tov. What else do you have? I also have a Mazel Tov to my first cousin once removed. I forget what we decided she was. Leslie Weinstein. She became an adult bat mitzvah this past weekend in Colorado. I got to watch the live stream. It was incredibly moving. My cousin Leslie said she's just being bat mitzvah. And then I have a welcome. I have a welcome to the tribe, a welcome to the J crew, to Adele Noah Cohen, the second daughter of my dear friends, Ruben and Juliana. And I'm so excited for them. And she has this- Adele. Wait, so Ruben is bringing back the name Adele? Yes. That is, my God, dad is Ruben and daughter is Adele. <laughs> Ruben, is... Ruben understands what the game is. <laughs> anyway, Ruben and Juliana, love you guys. Mazel tov. Liel, do you have a mazel tov? I have three. Not one, but three. First of all, a mazel tov to my dear friend and former guest of this here show, Rabbi Dr. Ari Lam, who's celebrating his birthday today as we record Mazel Tov to this leader of the Jewish people. But I also want to note the passing of two people, one who was Jewish, one who was not. Goodbye to David Dushman, the last living liberator of the Auschwitz concentration camp, who died at 98. He was one of just 69 people in this 12,000-man Soviet army unit to survive the war which is an astounding statistic. And he later became an Olympic fencing coach for the Soviet Union. So goodbye to you, sir. By the way, Soviet army tough, Soviet fencing team even more intense. (laughs) Just saying. They actually stab you with the sword. There's no protective gear in Soviet fencing. Uh, Closer to home, it gave me great sadness as an avid reader and the husband of a very long-time scholastic employee, to learn that Dick Robinson, the CEO of Scholastic, the publisher that gave us Harry Potter and the Hunger Games, and who inherited the company from his father who started it, has passed away. In his sleep, he was a man dearly and deeply committed to literacy, to fine literature for children, to quality, and he will be very sorely missed. I have two Mazel Tovs this week. First of all, our loyal listener, Jeffrey Grossman, alerted us to the fact that his grandson, Jake Grossman, is graduating from high school, Jackson High School in Mill Creek, Washington, and going off to college in the fall to study marine biology. Mazel Tov to the whole Grossman mishpucha 
for this wonderful event. I mean, is he really going to study marine biology or is he just telling dad? <laughs> yeah, well, it's, you know, it's funny. Every nine-year-old says they're going to study marine biology because they like dolphins. They've been to SeaWorld. They're gonna, I think there was a, a week when I was going to be a marine biologist. But I actually believe that Jake Grossman is going to. Leal, is your implication that he's just going to party and smoke weed, but he had to come up with a major? I think he's taking marketing or communication. Or surfing. <laughs> I think surfing is what marine yeah. biology is code for. Right. Yeah, Jeffrey did not tell us where he's going to college. That would clue us in. Is he, is he surfing? Will he be surfing or skiing? In Utah, <laughs> study marine biology. <laughs> and so this was really interesting. I was listening to the voicemails last night and this very exuberant person had left three voicemails and it was clearly someone who knew me. And I think I could place the voice, but I couldn't figure out who it was. But the person said, come on, Mark, like you've known for weeks that Tani Cohen fraud is going to be the new headmaster of your daughter's school and you haven't said anything about it. So here I am giving a big shout out to Tani for being appointed headmaster of Ezra Academy. And also, this listener was kind enough to remind me for becoming the father of, of a newborn baby, which is also wonderful and deserving of a mazel tov. So big ups to Tani Cohen fraud. Tani's really an overachiever, isn't he? Wow. No, he's super achieving. Like, big month for him. But I can't figure out who the person was who left me this mildly chastening series of voicemails. It was someone who's deep in my business, who's making omelets in my kitchen, as my friend Derek would say. He's all up in my grill. He knows me. He knows Tani. And I couldn't figure out who it was. But thank you for reminding me to give these shouts out like attorneys general to Tani Cohen fraud. Unorthodox is brought to you by Tablet Magazine on the web at tabletmag.com. We need your mail. We crave it. We desire it, but we also need it. We need your feedback. We need to know what we're doing right, what we're doing wrong, what we're doing medium. Reach us at unorthodox at tabletmag.com or send a voicemail of, you know, 60 seconds or fewer to 914-570-4869. Do it right now. You got free calling data wireless. Why not call us? 914-570-4869. Subscribe to our newsletter at bit.ly slash unorthodox podcast. We are ramping up the live shows again. So you want to reach out to producer Josh Cross. That's Cross with a K at jcross at tabletmag.com. Our show is produced by Josh Cross and Sarah Fredman Ader. Our associate producer is Robert Scaramuccia. Artwork by Esther Wardiger. Theme music by Golem. Mailbox theme by Steve Barton. Our Maccabia team captain is Jordi Sode. Rabbinic supervision by Rabbi Paula Jane Winnig of Temple Congregation Achdut V'Shalom in Fort Wayne, Indiana. That's a lot of fun to say. Achdut V'Shalom in Fort Wayne, Indiana. And we come to you once again from the scattered locations that we are calling Argo in Diaspora. The scattered locations of Tablet Studios. Shalom, friends. Bibi, is that you? Uh, <laughs> uh, 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 who's who's uh, who's said that? No, the thing about Bibi is that he has this. Uh, this His voice is this, so uh, deep, so deep. This way of uh, it's not just uh, the depth of the voice; it's also the uh, the cut of the diction. <laughs> it makes it sound like he's saying very important things. He's like, "I want that ice cream flavor that my wife likes." <laughs> I I like pistachio <laughs> and garden furniture. <laughs>